Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to Voices from the Real World. Profile Theater is a theater company located in Portland, Oregon. Profile Theater centers the season around a season-long featured writer. Our best artists help us see. And at Profile, each year, we use a different writer's unique perspective as a lens that helps us see our shared world in new and surprising ways. Community Profile is an affinity space built around the structure of a free writing workshop. Participants in Community Profile meet, write, support, share, and bear witness to other people who may have walked a mile in their shoes. In Community Profile, we feature writers who have won awards and had numerous books published, as well as writers who are making their first foray into expressing themselves on paper. The result is writing that is singularly personal, provocative, powerful, moving, funny, tragic, beautiful, and that encapsulates the entirety of the human experience. What this podcast does is give those writers, those creators, a chance to share their life stories and their writing in a public forum so that we can celebrate and appreciate victories that have been won and challenges that have been overcome by people whose lives you may recognize or be experiencing for the very first time. Community Profile is the writing workshop built around an affinity group. This particular affinity group is the LGBTQIA2S plus group. Um, and with us today, we have Matthew Miller, uh, playwright extraordinaire and, um, and a, and a person who's been showing up pretty regularly to Community Profile. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing fantastic. Extraordinaire is uh, a very nice compliment, so I appreciate that. I'm not <laughs> sure if that's correct, but thank you. I do appreciate that. Well, um, Matthew shared with me some of the stuff that he's writing, and it was wild and extraordinary, and I'm really looking forward to talking about it. <laughs> you know, um, but first, Matthew, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and where you come from and how you wound up writing and what makes you tick? Yeah, so I've been doing this for, gosh, it, over about a decade now, and um, I'm from North Dakota. Um, so I'm one of only a handful of people to ever have left the state. Um, there's not many of us. Uh, and my husband and I relocated here to Portland about uh, four years ago. Um, and it's been such a welcoming, warm, and loving community uh, for the playwrights and for the theater community in general. Um, I'm very lucky. I'm very privileged to have been uh, accepted into this community with open arms. And it's just it's thrilling uh, how much really, truly great work right now is being created in this community. And uh, at the community profiles, you see that, how many great individuals, uh, the level of talent that's in there, and how many people are taking part in it. Um, and it's just, it's a, it's a really, truly amazing community. So yeah, I've been doing this for about mm, 10 years, uh, primarily focusing on, on playwriting. Um, I'm a member of Limestorm Playwrights right now, which is a local uh, playwriting group. I believe you had Josie Seed on a few weeks ago, and That's she's right. one of the members of Limestorm. Um, there's about 12 of us in that organi- in that group. I'm also a very active member of PDX Playwrights. Um, if you're not familiar with PDX Playwrights, PDX Playwrights is something truly amazing. Every other week, they read a full-length play by somebody who lives in our community. So that is occurring two times a month. Um, and I don't really know any other towns that are doing something like that. I'm also a member of the Dramatist Guild. Um, 
And if you're a playwright, I definitely would recommend that. There's so many perks involved with being a member of the Dramatist Guild, member of the Portland Civic Theater Guild, um, and uh, I'm also a member of the Portland. I'm on the board of directors of the Portland Area Theater Alliance. So I'm highly involved with the local theater community. Um, I've also been working with Bag and Baggage. We've been producing a series called Sequestered Soliloquies, um, and Cassie Greer, uh, the artistic director of Bag I'm and a big Baggage, fan. Cassie's yeah. Cool. She reached out to me about doing something in quarantine, and we settled on the sequestered soliloquies. And we've been doing that every other month since about March or April. And we're looking to do another one coming up here in at towards the end of February. So a lot of stuff on our plates. Um, very busy, very active. Um, and sometimes I wish I had more time to write, but uh. sure, I hear you. I hear you. Actually, uh, I myself have been like, man. Um, should I take a break this year from theater and concentrate on the writing just so I can get something done? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, it's so hard to say no to stuff, though, especially when you're trying to pay the bills and whatnot. Oh, yeah. You know, do you come from a family of writers or oh, a family God, of theater no. people? Theater in North Dakota. I'm from rural North Dakota. Like, this is the last thing anybody from there could imagine doing. I come from a, a land of, of farmers, and they're very creative. But not in the artistic field. Um, so, no, n- not many people back there. So where was the turn made, you think? <laughs> um, watching a lot of soap operas as a kid. <laughs> um, watching soap operas. I used to write soap operas as a child. And I can't. I'm thank God. Is that They're right? God. <laughs> yes. I thank God I didn't save them because a six-year-old trying to understand what's going on, like 10 you have no idea what's going on. So they were always super, super weird. Um, what was yeah. your favorite? Uh, I loved I loved The Young and the Restless. <laughs> so, And Victor Newman, honest to God, like Victor Newman is probably one of the greatest characters created in any medium of of anything. Victor Newman is, is a, just a fantastic creation of... And I can't imagine, I've always wondered like if I could write for a soap opera... Because those people are workhorses. They just, you have to write a 45-minute episode of television five days a week. And (laughs) I don't know how you just, how anybody can do that. Uh, Because, like, for me to write 10 pages sometimes takes two months. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. I have no idea how they're doing it. It's funny, I never thought about about it like that. You know, you're right, that would... I would be some heavy lifting. That's a tough road to hoe. Yeah. I, it just, it's an amazing, amazing that somebody thought that was a good idea. Like, we're going to have 45 <laughs> original minutes of content every single day of the week. Right. Is it non-scripted? No, it's going to be scripted. Um, and, and just doing it. I, I can't imagine how you, how you do it. Do you think any of that influences your writing now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Soap operas are weird, man. You know, you've, have you ever watched soap operas? I have ever, yes. <laughs> there yes. was one called Passions, which uh, in the 2000s was bonkers, bonkers crazy. And the thing about soap operas is, so I know you like comic books. Yeah. So similar, so, soap operas have this insane level of continuity, but you also are consistently retconning. And then you're going back in time to like fix the retcon. And then it's like, okay, we just totally screwed up the continuity, so now we have to go back in and fix it. And you are dealing with 60-plus years of history. Woof. And, you know, you're, you're committed to that history, but also always constantly changing it. So 
Yeah, I would say that soap operas have influenced a great deal just because the the ability of any point in time, anything can happen and nobody is ever safe in in a world of soap operas. Um, right on. Right on. Yeah. Um, and so you're going to share some writing of your own with us today. Correct, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I know I definitely want you to start off with the Mother Teresa piece. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I think just read it first and then give us the context afterwards. I want to talk about that one for sure. Okay. So uh, this is a piece from a play called Martyr. Um, this is Mother Teresa. And I'm not an actor. I'm a playwright. So please uh, <laughs> That's a disclaimer. Me. Yes. Uh, so you're probably wondering why I'm here. It's perfectly normal to have questions. We all have questions. We all have doubt. And I would know a thing or two about doubt. After all, I am St. Teresa of Calcutta, the patron saint of doubt. But if you want answers, well, for answers, there must always be a price. Alms for the poor, alms for the poor. There was a man, or was it a woman? It's hard to tell when the poor soul is nothing more than skin and bones. But I suppose famine will do that for you. Alms for the poor, alms for the poor. Was it in Calcutta, Port-au-Prince? Perhaps it was Beirut. These things are hard to remember. Yes, yes, it must have been Beirut. There was a terrible war. Bombs, bullets, entrails, and innards. Alms for the poor, alms for the poor. The thing I remember most was the aroma of urine and excrement. He had leprosy. Leprosy it was rampant in its beauty and its splendor. Alms for the poor, alms for the poor. Have you ever met a man who has been blessed with leprosy? It is divine, absolutely divine. Do you want me to keep going? Oh, yeah. Finish, <laughs> finish the page that uh, you sent me. Lesions, ulcers, pustules. The flesh manages to peel away from the bone down to the cartilage, down to the ligature of the muscle as if it were a banana, but much more sweet, revealing the elegance of God's design for all to see. Alms for the poor, alms for the poor. And this man, half dead, buried in rubbish, his body a feast for rats and ants, his toes, the color of spoiled grapes, ripe enough to pop. This man, who suffered so exquisitely, so eloquently, he fixed his gaze on mine, his eyes, a cloud of rheum and pus, craving sympathy, craving dignity, begging God for compassion, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. But alas, alas, the poor soul had no money. How was he to pay the price? For when one asks of God, there must always be a price. It was then I knew, I knew what I must do, for intense love does not measure, it just gives alms for the poor, alms for the poor. I approached the man and asked if I could wash his feet, a simple act of God's simple servant. Nothing more, nothing less, my hands ran down his legs, caressing the flesh. Tending to his open wounds, rivulets of blood began to form beneath my warm embrace, but the poor soul, he could not feel my gentle touch. What was I to do for the price? It must be paid. Alms for the poor, alms for the poor. I'm going to end there. <laughs> okay, great. So, tell me about this piece. Tell me about this play. Oh, gosh. So, this play is called Martyr. Um, this is a play that uh, I developed. Um, there is a group of individuals, uh, uh, I guess you would call them a cult, who lives down in Clackamas County, I believe. And they have had children who have died of purely preventable things. Um Children have died of things like appendicitis, and it got to the point where eventually they had to start arresting them because they their religious beliefs dictate them. They aren't allowed to seek professional medical advice for any treatment. So kids were dying from these incredibly preventable things. And my the question that I ask myself is, what happens to an individual who believes that God is going to protect them from everything? 
And then what happens when the unthinkable happens, when essentially God has punished you and your child, and you didn't know that there, this was an entirely preventable death? Um, so this piece comes from that, and it is about a woman who has returned from being imprisoned for seven years uh, for manslaughter, for allowing her daughter to die from appendicitis. And she has returned home to confront her mother. Um, the cult has been disbanded, and all that is left is her mother. And the goal of this young lady is she is going to be tortured to death, effectively making her a martyr. And in the process, she is going to be able to confront God for allowing her young child to die. And throughout the course of the play, she is visited by Mother Teresa, who um, uh, usually is depicted as this extraordinarily caring saint. But the reality is Mother Teresa was a very, 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 very flawed individual. And um, for most of what I've read, she actually thought being in pain and being impoverished was virtuous and allowed you to be closer to God. She also continually doubted whether or not she was doing God's work. Um, she would align herself with dictators and, and not the best people in the world um, in order to continue her, her crusade of, of essentially alleviating people out of poverty, but they never did because she believed that being in pain, being poor, being impoverished puts you closer to God. Um, and then this individual is also uh, visited by Joan of Arc, who oftentimes is depicted as this virginal um, beauty, when in fact Joan of Arc would have been the most badass warrior woman in the history of the world because at the time she led an army. A woman led an army. She would have been bloodthirsty and ruthless. And also she believed that she could talk to God, so she was probably batshit insane. And then finally, uh, the young lady is visited by the Virgin Mary, um, who also has dealt with the trauma of losing a child, um, who also believed that God was going to protect them. So um, at the end of the day, it's, it's a very powerful, it's a, it's a piece about faith, about belief, and ultimately about forgiveness and forgiving yourself for the terrible things that we do and not allowing that to consume us, which I think so many of us just consume ourselves. I'm Catholic. Um, so we are racked with guilt uh, for most of our, well, we're taught like, remember all of your sins and then you go confess them and they'll magically disappear. Well, I, when you're a kid, you're like, I've spent the last seven months remembering every bad thing I did. And now I just feel bad and I feel bad and I feel bad. So that has always stuck with me. So that's um, what this piece is. Uh, I, I loved it. I love this this uh, new interpretation of Mother Teresa. I hadn't. It doesn't sound like like, like I haven't done like any deep research on the subject, so I don't want to uh, talk too much, and I don't want to discount whatever good stuff she has. But I had read something that that she was not the the saint she was held up to be, which a lot of times I feel like that says more about us mm-hmm. and our need for saints and our need for heroes than it does about the individual in question. You know, I mean, you know, uh, people are going to do what they're going to do. And but, uh, I, you know, it was uh, when I read it, like I immediately made all these connections that you have been talking about in the past few minutes about about who she was in actuality and 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 in the limitations of her persona mm-hmm. and, and how they played out, you know. So um, and it was even uh, uh, a distinct thread of dark, dark humor. You know. Yeah, <laughs> the piece is darkly, darkly humorous. Um, I think you can't approach 
anything that's super serious without having an underlaying of humor in there to help you get through the... I have been hearing <laughs> this a lot lately, and we should bring that up when we talk about Fertile Ground in a little bit. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Matthew Miller. Domestic violence is a public health crisis of epidemic proportions. One in three women and one in seven men will experience abuse. At Raphael House of Portland, we are working to change that. Raphael House has offered emergency shelter and a safe haven for families fleeing violence for over 40 years. Our mission is to help survivors build the safe, independent lives they deserve. And we're here every step of the way for as long as families need. Each year, we serve more than 400 survivors, half of whom are children. Now they're growing up in safe, violence-free homes. But we don't only respond to domestic violence. We want to stop it from ever happening. That is why prevention is a part of everything we do. We help families, plus thousands of teens and local schools learn about consent and equitable relationships, so that one day, no one will need our services. If you or a loved one needs to talk to an advocate, you are not alone. Our confidential hotline is available 24-7 at 503-222-6222. Visit us at www.raphaelhouse.com to learn more, access resources, get involved, or make a donation. Because no one deserves to be hurt by someone they love. And together, we can build a future without domestic violence. And we're back with Voices from the Real World, featuring Matthew Miller. Can we do the piece with the big bad wolf? Oh my gosh. So this is the complete opposite. So this is what I'm currently working on for Fertile Ground. This is a, a piece called, for my children's musical, yes, I'm working on a children's musical, uh, called One Pig, Two Pig, Three Pig, Blue Pig, about the only blue pig in a world that's pink. And the following is uh, a number from The Big Bad Wolf, uh, when we finally meet The Big Bad Wolf, who is not that big and not that bad. And this song is called Give a Little Oink. And again, I'm not a singer, so just bear with me. Does life have you down, and when you look around, all you see is heartache and pain? You can barely pull through, lost all meaning to you, as if you've got nothing to gain. Then let me tell you, my friend, that this ain't the end. Just put all those bad thoughts away, because there's always tomorrow. Say goodbye to your sorrow, and join me and sing this refrain. And give a little oink. It makes everything better. <laughs> Yes, give a little oink, and you'll feel good today. When you're down or you're sad or you're feeling so mad, it makes everything grander, I swear. When you give a little oink, chase those worries away. So tell me about, so what is the context for the big bad wolf to be singing this to the blue pig? So blue pig um, has decided that the only way that they can prove that they belong in their village, since they are the only blue pig and every other pig is pink, is they have to do something to prove their worth. And this mythical figure in their community is the big bad wolf, who is constantly blowing down houses throughout the pig community for time immemorial. So the uh, blue pig sets out on a journey and he's going, and they, they're going to bring the big bad wolf to justice 
they don't know what the big bad wolf looks like, and the, they run into the big bad wolf who has uh, stubbed their toe in the process. And uh, the big bad wolf, uh, Blue Pig, is lost and is crying in the forest. And the big bad wolf offers to take Blue uh, Blue Pig back home, but they have to cheer up before. Um, they're willing to take them back home. So in the process, they sing this song, Give a Little Link, um, which I think is just a lovely song. And it's something that I've turned to so often in these past few months, uh, the foolishness and the silliness of sometimes you just have to do uh, little things in life just to make things better. And that's kind of what this this song is about. And the play is, so this is the complete opposite of Martyr. And this was written for this year's Fertile Ground because I knew I couldn't do anything that was... I didn't want to do anything serious. Um, a hero of mine is Jim Henson, and a hero of mine is Mr. Rogers. That's a good hero. I think that they Jim are both... Jim Henson is a boss. Yeah, Jim Henson was this childlike quality innocence to him, but also incredibly, incredibly dark. Whereas you look at things like the Dark Crystal and Labyrinth, they're, they're terrifying. But then you have the opposite end of the spectrum, and he created quite possibly the most influential show ever ever made, which is Sesame Street, sure. which is pure innocence, and everything great in the world is on Sesame Street. Um, and so I leaned into that, um, writing something that does not insult a child's intelligence, that is at their level, and um, is a celebration of just, you know, just life in general. So I'm hoping that's what comes through in this children's musical um and i don't know if i've achieved that goal i'll probably never know but if i could ever achieve anything close to what jim henson or fred rogers managed to accomplish i think i will be you know i don't think there's any greater thing that you can do on this world is to even if you can reach one kid and get them to think a little bit differently that's uh achieving quite a bit so children's theater is a goal of yours just this one <laughs> <laughs> I, don't well, I, was, know. I was curious about that. So, uh, and w- where did that come from? What made you decide to write a children's play? Um, so Josie Seed, who you had on here, told me that she was going to write a Christmas play. And the day Josie Seed said, well, I said, well, I want to write a children's musical. And Josie Seed said that she was writing her Christmas play. And I said, well, if you're going to do your Christmas play, I probably need to do my children's musical. Um, so that's why, uh, because she decided to do something that she had always wanted to do. And I had always wanted to do something like this, but I've always been scared because, A, I don't sing. B, I don't know how to write music. I don't know how to read music. Um, And a lot of stuff that I write is definitely not for children. Um, So I decided to do it. And it's one of the most fun pieces I've ever had writing. And I also like it more than anything else that I've ever written uh, because it's just... It's about celebrating our differences. And this comes into something about queerness. You know, it's also subversive. Um, and it's, it's, it's about representation. Um, I imagine when this, if this would ever get produced, that everybody would be represented on stage, that there wouldn't be a part of our community that is not represented in one of these pigs. And one of the songs is called Every Little Pig is Perfect. And it's about ce- celebrating our differences, whether that's a disability, whether that's sexual orientation, whether that's gender whether that's any physical flaws or features, um, those differences are what make us perfect. Um, and I think that's always important to know, is is being different is what makes you a perfect and normal human being. Any thoughts to maybe lining up a composer? I have no idea. 
they're all very sing-songy. So. And the, the title sounds like uh, um, Dr. Seuss. Yeah, the one pig, reference. two pig, three, or one fish, two fish, three fish, three fish, blue fish. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's even what the book is called, so. Right. So yeah. you're also a Dr. Seuss fan. Of course. Who isn't a Dr. Seuss it's, fan? That's very true. That's yeah. very true. I don't know how well of a human being he was, but a lot of what he wrote is just so amazingly silly, but also so incredibly intelligent at the exact same time. Um, to do the rhyming schemes like that probably took a lot more work than I think people people realized. Uh, so brilliant, mm-hmm. though, right? And, and again, like you, like I've I have since read some questionable things about um, who he was as a person, but some, you know, and this isn't necessarily like the way it should go, but like, I know at some point I will die and I hope I will be more than my flaws. Cause yeah, yeah you could take me apart too. I think you could take anybody apart. We're all human and we've all done terrible, terrible things. And unfortunately, sometimes the people that we view as role models, we find out that they were incredibly, incredibly flawed human beings. And I guess that's a, we're going through that culturally and as a society right now, a reckoning of, of, of kind of deconstructing the past, um, and, and figuring out if our heroes are people who should actually be celebrated. Yeah. And, you know, and a lot of times it's like, you know, and those are all good, hard questions, but say like as a kid, when I read Dr. Seuss and I loved it and I had no idea about who this person was Mm -hmm. and really who that other person was, was not important to the art that I was consuming, Mm -hmm. you know, like, I don't need to even. I don't even need to know all this other stuff to love Cat in the Hat mm-hmm. or Green know? Eggs and Ham. And I was I, right, <laughs> you know. And I was I was glad that I found out this other stuff as an adult, you know, yeah. not as a child. It's hard. It's it's hard. And I guess there's no easy answers to any of these of these questions. And I think it's stuff that we're grappling with, and I imagine we'll be continued to grapple it throughout. Right. Because um, sometimes I feel like. Um, like I remember reading about like Martin Luther King having extramarital affairs and mm-hmm. whatnot. And I was like, you know, the fact that he's actually just a flawed human being like the rest of us for me makes his extraordinary achievements that much more extraordinary. Mm-hmm. You know, if he was some kind of saint, it would be easy to do what he did, mm-hmm. but he wasn't, he was just a guy like me um, who still went and, accomplished all these things, you know, in the face of death, you know, like, like you used the word martyr, you know, um, he didn't have, you know, like a lot of times, like the people we call martyrs, they don't want to die any more than the rest of us do. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't have some kind of like noble thing, but they keep going, you know, and when that, that normal guy keeps going, if that normal guy is making this extraordinary art, you know, it makes it that much more special, mm-hmm. you know, but it's a question, you know, it's a qu- and it's a hard one sometimes. It's a hard one. Yeah. Because sometimes people do do incredibly terrible things, and maybe we shouldn't be looking at. Right. Uh, at their, we should be uh, hypercritical of what they're doing. And, you know, to be fair, it is because, you know, when we talk about who traditionally has been visible, it has been one segment of the society, and it's been uh, white men. And I am a white man to be – I'm a gay white man, which um, – I think allows me to be a little bit more subversive than a lot of straight white men are. But, you know, and when we look at it that way, it's also, um, it's incredibly problematic. So the more voices that we allow into the room, I think the better our world will become. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Matthew Miller. Hot and throbbing. There are two worlds in this story. 
reality constructed as we know it, and a world that sometimes resembles the real as we fantasize about it. Cut to interior night voiceover. She was hot. She was robbing. But she was in control. Control of her body. Control of her thoughts. Control of him. And she would make him wait. Make him beg. Too male bashing. Make him ask? Ugh. Fuck it. Make him beg. Make them both beg. Mom! Where's your eyeliner? On the top shelf next to the Ben Gay. Hot and Throbbing by Paula Vogel, directed by Jamie M. Ray, is available for streaming November 4th, 2020 to June 20th, 2021 to members and non-members at Profile Theater On Air. Learn more and listen at ProfileTheater.org. And we're back with Voices from the Real World featuring Matthew Miller. You know, speaking of allowing voices into the room, you wanted to talk about Fertile Ground. Yes! Oh my gosh, so I love talking about uh the portland theater scene in general so right now there is it's my favorite time of the year in portland it is time for the fertile ground festival of new work and the fertile ground festival of new work typically begins the last uh the last weekend of january and runs through the first weekend of february and if you're unfamiliar with fertile ground fertile ground is an opportunity to see brand new pieces that have never been anywhere else. It is a, a place to experience new work and an abundance of new work and an amazing plethora of theater, dance, spoken word, poetry, monologues, uh, just art, performance art, and everything in between. Some of it isn't even uh, performance art. You, you never know what you're going to get. And that is currently running. It, for the first time ever in the history of the festival, uh, the festival went to an entirely online platform, and you can go check it out at fertilegroundpdx.org. Um, I believe that there's 40-plus new works of creation this year. For the first time ever, the festival was curated. Uh, the decision was made to curate this this year's festival because we, it was going to be online and we couldn't have it the traditional free-for-all. So I, I'm sure you're familiar with Fertile Ground, but traditionally Fertile Ground is just a free-for-all. And there's like 100, 100 plus original acts of creation being done throughout the city in like 10 or 12 days. And it's just an amazing, amazing experience. So this year we we had to cut it down to a bit more. And uh, Nicole Lane and Dre Slavin have been uh, operating the festival and have pretty much been the guiding hand of the festival over the past 10 years. And they have been running this festival with literally probably 32 cents. And that's the type of budget that they have to work with. And it has grown into this amazing opportunity for creative minds in, per in Portland to get their work in front of an audience. So you see everything from readings all the way up to full-blown full productions. And it's just a very special part. It's 
It's our version of a fringe festival, but unlike other fringe festivals, only people who live and reside in our community and work in our community are able to take part. And it's something incredibly, incredibly special. And some of my most favorite things I've ever seen have come from the Fertile Ground Festival of Newark. And sometimes these pieces that you see will take on a much bigger life of their own. For example, E.M. Lewis uh, won the Steinberg Award for How the Light Gets In, which began as a reading at Fertile Ground at ART, and it has now gone on to be produced, and she won her second Steinberg with it. So it's just, it's impressive. You never know what is going to hit. And then on the opposite side of the spectrum, which I also love, you never know what is just not going to work at all. Right. And I love that about this. It's the the risk and the uncompromising ability of fertile ground to just put your art out into the world. Yeah, and, you know, and I wonder how in this time of COVID, um, how how much more important that the fertile ground festival is going to become because I have because you know it's like with all the theaters shut down and doing what they can to stay open, um, it feels like a re- reimagining of what theater is in America. For one thing, I feel like most people who work in theater would agree that a reimagining of the of the business model is long overdue, mm-hmm. you know, and what is important and what is pushed forward, you know, needs to change and be altered. And, and you know, and I feel like with, with everything that's happened, you know, it's not going to be about what comes off the... Broadway and off-Broadway assembly line out of New York that, you know, that won the OB Award mm-hmm. and won this award. You know, the communities are start, going to ha- are start going to have to look more and more into their community, as you were saying, for the, for the work they produce and, 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 like, and realize that that is uh, as, as fertile and rich, <laughs> no mm-hmm. pun intended, <laughs> um, and rich a ground to, 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 to bring work out of as, as any place else, you know, and I find that, uh, you know, a lot of our best artists, you know, like, like in, in just in this, this sort of ground, like I've talked to Damaris Webb and mm-hmm. uh, Jessica Wallenfels and Beth Thompson and Lava Alipai. Um, and, and, you know, there's a whole host of others, but, you know, a lot of people are talking about this very thing that you're saying. You know, and, um, and 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 for a lot of this new work, it's going to be coming out of you know the people in the community, and a lot of times about the community. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what's going to make this work more relevant to the audiences that are right here in town than say the latest Arthur Miller play or the latest you know you know whatever it is. And you know, these new voices are are starting to be heard. I always say that Paula Vogel wasn't always Paula Vogel. Do you know what I mean? Paula Vogel was at some point just like an undiscovered playwright. And I also read once that what made August Wilson so unique was that he wrote about Pittsburgh. Yeah. But it was not about Pittsburgh. Through the writing about Pittsburgh, he was able to speak a universal truth to all of us and to everyone. And I think um, what what occurs is when when you are producing work by playwrights in your community, you create a very healthy ecosystem and it uh, it raises all boats because you're getting stories about our community. But those stories about Portland are universal because what's going on here in Portland, what's going on in Clackamas, Multnomah, Washington County and up in Clark County and Vancouver, that's going on everywhere. But we're getting it through a very uh, focalized lens. And that focalized lens specificity also is broadens who it applies to. So, yeah, and I'm so excited and I, I'm really, really hoping as we come out of this pandemic that a lot of theater companies 
realize that there is so much great work being produced in our community or being written in our community. And like you said, you don't necessarily need to go get produce it, it, it and trust me i love the you know what i mean like um the largest shows coming here so something from broadway that just recently came here and they're doing at art or portland center stage or, or portland playhouse i love that because that's what the theater is but then there's also playwrights within our own community who also have a story to tell but the only way that they're ever going to get their story on a bigger stage into new york is if somebody here locally takes the chance on them first because you can't be expecting a theater company in, in Boston to produce a playwright in Portland. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We have to support our community first, and then that will allow them to go and expand. Um, because every single community in America has their own playwrights that they want to produce. Um, so I hope that we start looking internally, and I know a lot of theater companies already are. Um, I would love it if every theater company at least once a year was doing an original work by that's it. That's a, a local playwright. Yeah, you know, have, have one slot every year that's just for somebody local. Yeah, and not only that, here's the other thing. As an actor, Bobby, you know that somebody is going to write a role for Bobby Bermea. Hmm. It's not going to be for somebody else. Sure. It's going to be for people who live in our community. Because when I write, I'm already thinking about the actor that I'm going to cast locally and that I want to work with locally for that role. And I've seen them in productions before, so I'm writing with them in mind. I'm writing for a specific theater company in town in mind. So it's just that larger thing. Um, and I, I really hope that we can start doing that as a community uh, coming out of this pandemic. And I think there's a market for it. Yeah, uh, I really feel like COVID is a good time for some like palate cleansing and for some habit breaking, mm -hmm. you know, because there's a lot of things that we do because that's the way we've always done it. And it's time to rethink about a bunch of that stuff. And there's so, so many talented playwrights across every single, every single spectrum of the community who we have somebody writing that play right now in our community. It's just, it's amazing. And the quality of work is so incredibly good. And it just takes that opportunity of saying, like, let's do this. But then on the same time, we as theater makers have to support that theater company who takes the risk. <laughs> we have to buy the tickets to go and see that show sure. at the same time. Because if we're not buying to see shows created by people in our own community, I can't blame the theater companies for not wanting to produce that work. So we also have a responsibility to be supporting those individual shows and going and actually spending our money on there. And I know it's tough because being in the theater, theater does not make anyone fantastically wealthy. But I think it's a very, it's on us too, as, as patrons of the arts to go and support those shows and be the first people in line and make sure that those shows are selling out so that the theater company knows if they continue to produce work created by members of our community, the members of our community will be the ones who buy the tickets to see that show. Right on. Right on. Um, well, thank you, Matthew Miller. Uh, I've really enjoyed you coming on. Thank you. Um, one last question I wanted to ask you was, uh, do you ever watch the show Fargo? Yes. Yeah. Is that a fair representation of North Dakota or not fair? Um, the accents are sometimes fair. The quirkiness is sometimes fair, but oftentimes it's more like a, a version, a West Coast version. North Dakota is so incredibly boring. That's... <laughs> If anything, but at times, incredibly random stuff happens because in my hometown of Drake, North Dakota, at one point, 
a, a mass murderer jumped off a train, and for three days we had a manhunt in my town of 365 people, and they found him in a cornfield. So yes, the stuff in Fargo, <laughs> as off the wall as it is, I guess it does happen sometimes. All right. So all right. Uh, well, that was Matthew Miller, playwright. Um, you said you have one fish, one pig, one pig, two pig, three pig, blue pig, and this is running in photograph. Right I'd now? recommend you check that out. Um, there's a number of other works. PDX Playwright has some great stuff. Linestorm Playwrights has some great stuff, and I highly recommend. And that you check out the Portland Civic Theater Guild. They have a new play award winner, Catnapper by Quick Jones. Um, so go give everything a chance and, and go see what's out there. Um, Dime Roberts and Don Wilson have a piece with uh, Big and Baggage called Troy USA. There's just so, so much good stuff, and I highly recommend that you check it out. And go uh, see Josie Seed and Sarah Gina Cardi's Fezziwig's Fortune if you get the chance. You heard it here first, folks, from Matthew Miller. One love and peace out. Thank you. That is it for this edition of Voices from the Real World. Voices from the Real World was put together by the creative team of Jamie M. Ray, Lion Producer, Robert A. K. Gagno, Sound Engineer, Rodolfo Ortega, Composer, and was recorded at the Willamette Radio Workshop in Portland, Oregon, which exists on the traditional lands of Multnomah, Kathlamet, Clackamas, Tumwater, and Malala bands of the Chinook peoples, the Tualatin band of the Kalapuya peoples, and many other tribes who made their homes along the Columbia River. We acknowledge and honor the ancestors and survivors of this place and recognize that we are here because of the sacrifices forced upon them, and we honor their descendants who live on. And I am Bobby Bermea, and this is Community Profile, voices from the real world, real people telling their real stories. Thank you for joining us. For more information about Community Profile or Profile Theater, go to profiletheater.org slash community profile. To hear more podcasts, go to profiletheater.org slash on air, where you'll find other episodes of Voices from the Real World. If you have feedback or suggestions for me, I'm taking all comers. Write me at bobbyb at profiletheater.org. One love and peace out. <laughs>